Welcome, welcome. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. Thank you for joining us this week. My name's Tom Douglas, uh, chef owner of a few of fabulous food businesses here in Seattle, including our our Rub With Love product line that you can find in all your groceries around the country. And I actually found it when I was in Scotland last week. It was in a grocery store in Scotland. How about that? Well, that's, an, uh, that's a long way to go shopping. Also, Serious Takeout in Ballard, Serious Pie downtown Seattle, Dahlia Bakery, Seatown Restaurant, and the Carlisle Room is now celebrating uh, being open five weeks, which is uh, really good. And, you know, um, we are the, ca- are the concessionaires at the theaters, the Paramount and the Moore Theater, and they have been just rocking out. People are so ready to go to a show. Oh. It's, uh, it's interesting. I think people are ready to go anywhere. I know. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in a hat, um, roaming around and uh, planning on some classes perhaps here at yeah, the Hot Stop uh, Society. Pamela, tell us what classes Terry has committed to in December. It's going to be super fun. Yes. I'm going to be his right-hand man. Oh, this! Uh-oh. I'm good. I might even pay full retail. Wait, we might have to double classes. price the charge because he's going to take all the money. I got him nothing I know, left. You get nothing. So I got to. We got to double up on the price here. He's going to do really sexy crepes for one, uh, sauces and stocks for another, pate choux uh, as the third, and then pomme de terre variations. I love your potatoes. Ooh. Potatoes are going to be master. fun. That's yeah. going to be fun to do. Potato Ooh. master. So look, we haven't announced dates or times yet, but those will be coming up in December. Remember, you need to buy a gift to somebody for December. So um, why not a class for you? Know, why not a here? class? Yeah. Poor guys out of work. And we'll have good music, I promise you that. Yes, that they'll true. be very musical. And will very. there be singing and dancing? Yes. Oh, of course there will be. We'll see. Why not? Oh, God. All right, here we go. Uh, peak season grapes, uh, what, uh, at least from our farm's perspective, the grapes are be- being harvested as we go and probably will be harvested all the way through the beginning of November. Uh, cookbook author Cassie Joy Garcia phones in with tips and tricks in her new book about Really, it's, it's all about cooking a couple of meals at a time, or at least the protein, and then taking it off uh, into a different direction on the next night, just kind of eliminating some of your prep time and, and uh, dirty dishes. Knife skills that can enhance your meal prep. You know, we do knife skills classes here, and they're always full. Yep. And uh, it's interesting how it can change the texture of a food on your palate when you're, when you're trying to make dinner you're enjoying a dinner. Yeah, I get I get good ideas on that because I just okay. went through I just went through that this weekend, so that's good. All right, October is National Seafood Month, uh, and we are going to talk to Michael Jackson and Lilani Dunn from Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. Talk about sustainable fisheries. Our favorite chanterelles, you know, they're out and about right now. We got oh some yeah, finally, and then mixed with some sun, you get some chanterelles. And lastly, we're going to uh, finish the show today with our. Rub with love, food for thought, tasty trivia challenge. Uh, that's always a fun time. And apparently we have Cat Gibbons is going to be here oh, today. Oh, <laughs> that's going to be that's fun. That's going to be fun. I guess we're going to have a lot of what do you make when you're pregnant nine months <laughs> is, what, is what we're going to find out. Uh, let's jump into Taste of the Week. I'm going to get right into that because I had it yesterday. It's still fresh on my palate. Uh, the mighty return of the Dahlia Bakery Coconut Macaroon. Yay! And, uh, I wish we had some. I take a lot of responsibility for this. <laughs> you, you can't know, often, be talking about macaroon without bringing some to the table. I know. I should have. I should have got over there, but I didn't this morning. But um, I take responsibility for this because I detest the classic kind of Jewish New York deli, really heavy 
pasty macaroons. Oh, I love those. You like those? Yeah, a lot of people love those. They're and, so coconutty. And they're more, they're more like they're more like Rocher than than. Uh, I just don't. The they're just macaroons. all macaroons. I mean, they're all coconut. It's like a solid ball, and it's hard to eat. and makes me want to die. Anyway, <laughs> so I took. That's not drastic. <laughs> I took a little French meringue. Uh huh. And mixed coconut into the French meringue, sure. and then bake those into light little coconut fluffy clouds. Right. And uh, I did this years ago with uh, uh, Shelly, uh, our baker at the time, and it made the Dahlia Bakery cookbook. And we just haven't had them on the menu right. since we reopened. And I they were sitting there yesterday. I saw them. They're one of my favorite all time cookies. <laughs> Literally reached over the counter and grabbed one and got slapped on the hand by. One of the counter people. Uh, but good, good. Go, who came, do you think you are, Tom uh, yeah. Douglas? <laughs> I came away with the cookie, and it was everything I could dream of. Well, that's awesome. These aren't a cookie that last day after day after day. You right, know, you, right. you want them within about six hours of when they've been baked. Oh, they get crunchy on the outside, light as air on the inside, and, and a good coconut, a nice coconut flavor. flavor. There you go. Okay, yeah. what's your taste of the week, Chef? Well, I went to a restaurant called Eight Row in uh, oh, Green Lake. Good. Remember those folks? They were here yeah. on the show. <laughs> and I was curious because their menu sounds really good, and it looks really good. And um, I was not disappointed. It was a very delicious evening. Uh, from beginning to end, there was no flaws in the food. The food was really interesting to me because it was a mix of, like, I mean, from, from tacos to... Uh, I mean, it traveled a little bit everywhere from it's remember the, the theme of the restaurant is the food of the restaurant is based on what they feed at the farm from all the workers they have and everything. So there's right. a little bit, there's a little yeah, bit of everything. Right. The first thing that I ordered for the table when we get there, it was three of us. First thing I ordered was before we order anything, I looked at the menu and I go, oh, we love those fried eggplant. Oh, my God. The best fried eggplant I have ever had. Ooh. Clean, like so clean of a fried eggplant, tender, crispy on the outside, tender on the inside, and a beautiful yogurt and um, cumin. No, sorry. Yogurt and, uh, yeah, you cumin. Cumin and yogurt as a sauce underneath. It was the most beautiful bites of eggplant I have ever had in my life. Tell David. Yeah. I would... It sounds like the eggplant fries from the old poppy. Remember those? Yeah, no, they yeah. were they were even those. even lighter of a, of a, of a, um, a covering. Uh-huh. I mean, it was sensational. It, it felt like there was no nothing on the eggplant, just quickly fried, tender on the inside, and again cooked all the way, tender, just like a French fries. It was so delicious. Wow! It was really nice uh, way to start. It was very meal. memorable because I'm not. I mean, it's hard to find an eggplant where you roll over and go, oh, my God, it's so delicious. <laughs> that was one. That was definitely one. So, well, the trip. Uh, uh, eight Row. Eight Row is in Silver... In, uh, Silver Lake. Green Lake. In Green Lake. It's right next to the PCC. Is it actually in, in the lake or is it like around the outside? It's on the outside of the lake. Oh, yeah, okay. it's not on the underwater. But it's uh, in that two new building where the PCC is. And um, I recommend anybody to go for a visit. Yeah. They're very charming. Great service. Um, you know, you nice, be an nice Italian looking. restaurant in that spot. That's when I was last there. So. Oh, because it looks brand new. Oh, that's interesting. Sure it is. Uh, okay, up next, it's grapes in all their glory. You should start to see them in your local grocery store. Some little bags of this and that in the grape world. Uh, let's talk about what to do with them. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM.
It's the Hot Stove Society kitchen. Terry and I are right here in it. The chef in the chapeau. Cooking away. Cooking away. You know, I'm just back from Scotland, so I'm uh, getting over my jet lag a little bit. I had been putting off that trip for two and a half years, and it was fun to knock it out and get out there in the wilds of Scotland. And uh, I say the wilds, but I stayed at this really nice club called the Loch Lomond Golf Club. You were roughing it up. I was roughing it. Yeah, exactly. it's, uh, it was super fun. So I did have my traditional Thai haggis bonbons. <coughs> that sounds, that is? <laughs> no, but a bonbon made out of haggis sounds like the grossest bonbon you've well, ever they had. Take a, they take <laughs> a regular haggis and the Thai curry ones, use the red curry, and they mix it in with the haggis. And then they scoop them out in little balls and bread them and put them on a, on a skewer and deep fry them. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a. It wasn't bad enough. The, to I, like, I like when something wasn't bad enough the first time around. We're going to fry it too. Well, honestly, when you think about it, uh, a t- traditional haggis is a whole lamb belly sewn up with yeah. kind of blood porridge in the center of it. So uh-huh. uh, uh, a little red curry Thai haggis bonbon is a much, <laughs> it better. much simpler way to go. <laughs> I, I would suggest that if you're going to try haggis for the first time, that might be a better way to go than a whole lamb belly. Uh, Grapes. Let's talk grapes. Uh, over at, uh, at the farm at Prosser, uh, we're surrounded by hops right now, which are getting yanked off their ropes uh, as we speak, uh, and also lots of Concord grapes, which yes. we're going to see in our supermarkets here if you haven't already. They're, they're being picked, and right down the road from us is the Milne uh, plant, uh, which by plant I mean like production, giant, giant, giant production plant. facility that takes the Concord grapes and turns them into... Uh, like a syrup. They dehydrate them and dehydrate the syrup so that when Welch's wants to make a quart of Welch's grape juice, they simply put in a water. few... Well, no, they put in water, but they put in a few tablespoons of this grape concentrate. concentrate yeah, yeah and, and that's how that works. And so somebody has to make the concentrate. So these Milne plants reduce all that and uh, down into concentrates. So, uh, the, the whole valley smells like mm. Concord grapes when this is happening. And right now, it's a mix of Concord grape odors and hop combined. Yep. You know, the beautiful citra hops. And- I was just in Walla Walla and on, I drove through Prosser on the way back. Uh-huh. And yes, the, actually, the hops are down. They, they pretty much finished to pick them up. But you could still smell a little bit. And, of course, the apple trucks are finishing the right. season. And a fun thing to do is when you see a big, you're on 82, the interstate, and you see a big semi, and you can see it a lot of times they're... Yep. Either grapes or apples or something. And sometimes you get behind a truck full of bales of dried hop Hops, flowers yeah. smells. or pellets. And you just drive behind it and it smells so good. Yeah. It's really fun. Okay, grapes. What are we going to do with grapes? Well, I think, I think uh, one, one very classic um, French dish is uh, truite grenobloise, which is made with grapes and toasted mm-hmm. almond and a little bit of vinegar, white vinegar. And that thick that often people don't think, I'm one of those people who doesn't mind having sweet and sour on my dish. Mm-hmm. Some people can't stand sweet on their fish, especially French people in general, but they seem to have an issue with that. But when you put vinegar in it, you totally change the texture, the, the flavor of the grape. Mm-hmm. Now you have a very deep um, sweet and sour flavor, and with toasted almond, you get the crunch that goes with it. Generally, those grapes are peeled. Now, peeling grape is a job for somebody who has really a full open schedule. (laughs) 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 It's not a job for somebody who has tons of things to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is an interesting thing to do when you can peel a grape. If the grape can actually, some grapes don't do well peeled, Mm -hmm. like the Cabernet grape that you have in the fields right now that they're picking is definitely not a grape you want to peel because it's going to fall apart. 
because it's too ripe. And it's got it's full of seeds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the the eating grapes um, that they have the on the market, grapes, yeah. yeah, they can peel easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should try it if you've never tried it. It's actually a good job to do. Again, but it's a, it's nice because you don't you have are a s- lying through your teeth. It's a good, it's a good job. <laughs> I to said do. if you have an open schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's so just, how do you do? How do it's you? It's just peel like grapes? peeling a tomato. It's, oh. it's the same as peeling a tomato. So you blanch it quickly. Uh, you can blanch them, or you can actually, if they're good, you just make a little incision with a sharp knife. And then you peel your grape just like you would a, a yeah. ripe tomato, which is... Life is too short, buddy. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, um, sweet and sour in my grapes is a good thing. And also pickle them. Uh, I know we talk about pickling a lot, but pickled grapes do a very beautiful, long, magic uh, okay. supply in your refrigerator. Let's go back to your sweet and sour grapes because I want to take this through the process. So you, you so see... So we've got a pan on the stove. You pan on the stove, medium heat. You put some butter in it. You get it to a brownish color. Mm-hmm. You put your trout filet or your sole filet in there, and then you color them on both sides. And it, quicks, it cooks very fast, very as fast. you know, just yeah. a few minutes. That's why it's important to have the brown butter, because you're adding some color even that you're... Correct. And you know, also typically flavor. you think about color as in a hard sear, but this is the color is maybe just the butter. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and the, the basting of that butter, because it's brown butter and then stops, uh, the basting of it will add a beautiful flavor to it. Then you remove your filet of trout or sole mm-hmm. out of the pan, and then you throw in some chopped shallots because, because it's French. Whatever. And then uh, you put in your grapes, and then you put it... So do you saute your shallots to a little translucency? Brown, you, you saute your shallots to a translucent stage, so just cook like a minute. Okay. And then you throw in your grape. And these are the grapes, and it doesn't, I mean, you said they could be peeled, but they don't have to be peeled. They don't have to be peeled. They and can we're just talking about like a red grape that you buy at the grocery store. Or a white grape, or, usually okay. white, yeah. Okay. And then you toss that in your pan for a minute or so, just to cook it a little bit, but don't, you know, don't. You don't want them to, like, Correct, mush, you don't want to mush out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you throw in your almond, and then you dish out some uh, rice vinegar or some white vinegar, mm-hmm. and then you, f- you put that in your pan, toss it around a big handful of chopped parsley, and then, bingo, you put that right over your fish. Into the same butter you sauteed the fish Into the same in. butter. Okay. And if, in most cases, you need to add a little bit more butter, mainly because some of it has stayed with the fish. Right. So you add a little bit more butter. And then it's kind of like a meunier idea, uh, you know, when you do a trout meunier or yeah. one of those fish. Almondine. Or- Almondine or whatever. It's the same kind of concept, except it's done with grape. Mm-hmm. And um, you can also, instead of uh, vinegar, use a sherry wine. I've used sherry wine in the past with grape. It tastes really delicious uh-huh. as well. Um, you know, sherry, like a dry sherry, not a creamy cherry, a dry cherry, obviously. And that makes a very wonderful sauce as well. Finish with a nugget of butter at the end. Again, more butter. Um, uh, one of the ways I like to use grapes is, um, you know, we make a ton of pizza dough, obviously, here at Serious Pie and you know, all over. And it, that dough can make so many things. It can make hamburger buns. You can make sure. out of it. You can do all sorts of things. But focaccia is another way. You just leave it a little bit thicker. Right. And then I'll take a macerated grape, and I'll just push them down into the dough. You know, the dough is full of uh, chunky salt and olive oil. You push the sweet grape down into the dough, and you bake them off like right. that. Right. And uh, as the dough rises, the grape cooks. And it looks so pretty. You know, this this is Especially um, if you want to, you can... Use savory grapes like a Cabernet grape or a Merlot grape if you can get them, but you do have to take the seeds out. All right. Because you don't want to be trying to mix the seeds and the bread dough, you know, in your mouth, trying to figure out what's what. Right. And uh, then uh, also... Then you just cut them in half. You don't... Right. You can either try and squeeze the seeds out because because you're baking the grapes, it, 
the um, shape of the grape is not as important, right? They're going right, to cook right. and, and kind of collapse anyway. Yeah, and also you can uh, take your grapes and um, I was going to say, once they're pickled, if you pickle your grapes, you can roll them into a little bit of prosciutto or something like this and have little poppers on your table. You just take julienne some prosciutto about a half an inch wide mm-hmm. and then roll the grape into it, the pickled grape, and then put that on the table with a little toothpick. Little pick, yeah. And then people have this, it's kind of like little poppers in your mouth of prosciutto and pickled so grapes. So yeah. fun. I so want nice. that. I want yeah, it's yeah, delicious. Exactly. Up next, uh, Cassie Joy Garcia. She's the author of Cooked Once. It's going to give us tips and tricks for two meals from one set of prep work. Right here on the Hot Stove Society Show, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Uh, again, we're joined by our producer, Pamela, and Sean, our uh, Mr. Mastermind behind uh, everything that we do here. Uh, Cassie Joy Garcia has uh, opted in to join us here today. She's got a new book out called Cook Once Dinner Fix. And... Uh, from the title, I don't quite get your whole concept, but just reading the first page, it becomes more and more clear that the whole idea is to uh, eliminate some prep time uh, throughout the week by when you do get in the kitchen to kind of get a few things done for a few meals. Is that uh, is that the gist of the story? Yes. Wow, that's so handy to have it summarized. <laughs> yeah, you could have talked to him before and put that in the front page. <laughs> I know, goodness. So, Cassie, you've been doing this for a long time, uh, uh, 10 or 11 years, it sounds like, from your book. Tell us about how you got started and then how this uh, has uh, morphed from the Fed plus Fit. Yes, I'd love to. So I started Fed and Fit a little bit over 10 years ago. Gosh, it feels odd to say that out loud as a personal blog. I was going through some, I was in my early 20s and going through some health transitions and really getting to the bottom nutritionally what I needed to eat to feel my best. And as I kind of changed some of the food that showed up on my plate, I also had to get creative again in the kitchen because I wanted to make sure that I didn't feel like I was going on any kind of a restricted diet. I still wanted to be able to eat all the fun, wonderful things that I grew up eating and learning how to cook. And that's, that's where the blog was born, was in an effort to share recipes and help share my lessons learned along the way. And it blossomed and in a lot of ways followed, my career has followed my real life as time has gone on and evolved. We're about to have our third baby in December. And so, you know, now the, the riddle is, gosh, how do we get a healthy homemade dinner on the table night after night without feeling like uh, totally depleted, mm-hmm. you know, after the end of it? It's such a hard thing to do. I'm watching my daughter go through. She, her baby is seven months old right now, young baby Hercules. And uh, <laughs> that's not his name. The whole the, the whole effort thing is really difficult when they've been up all night or they've you know are fussy day. You go to work a full time all day long, and I think your book really points out some of these important shortcuts so that at the end of the day, you're not saying to yourself, "I'm just calling out for a, a meal tonight," rather than cooking myself. Right, exactly. And, you know, and I I don't mean to vilify that because I definitely press that easy button every once in a while. But for folks who are wondering, gosh, I wish there was an easier way. I wish I could put this homemade dinner on the table and I wish it didn't take so much. You know, when you're tapped out, decision fatigue is a real thing. And uh, it feels like an uphill climb every night Mm -hmm. to get dinner on the table. I thought, how can we re-engineer this so it's more of a downhill slide? So so what is your first... 
advice to to go through this dilemma? Oh gosh, my first piece of advice would be there's a lot of power in just taking a little bit of time to plan. And when we do plan, let's say if it's a Saturday, right? And so it almost feels like you're ahead of the game, of getting ahead of the game, because it's not Sunday night. Uh, so take a little carve out 15, 20 minutes on a Saturday to think, what do we, what do we need to eat this week? How many meals do I really need to make? And what would my family like? And then just kind of start there and then fill in those blanks with meals that you actually feel like you would be very easy to tackle. My, I have a theory that we're overcomplicating dinner time. For folks who are feeling that dinner time burnout, I think that we're just making it too complicated. And I would rather see folks write their plan out and then go sweep back over it and say, gosh, okay, how do we simplify this further? And are there natural steps in that? For example, uh uh, I'm going to buy a rotisserie chicken at the store today. It's all cooked and ready to go. But I'm going to make one night, I'm going to make chicken noodle soup. Another night, I'm going to make chicken mm-hmm. enchiladas. Uh, is is it reasonable to take some shortcuts and then uh, do what you're talking about, extrapolate through the week of different meal plans? Absolutely. That sounds like a great dinner series. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been in the book. Um, yes. Oh, gosh. I lean heavily on rotisserie chicken, you know, and we put it in the instructions in the book. I have how to roast your own chicken. Mm-hmm. But at every twist and turn, I say, press that extra easy button where you can, whether that's buying the rotisserie chicken or buying your own enchilada sauce. You know, there's some really wonderful ones out there now, and there's no reason why we can't lean into them. I, I think uh, one of the things you said in your opening of your book, which I really uh, appreciate, you shouldn't get to the point where you don't enjoy the process. And if you're making it so difficult that you stop enjoying cooking, because I think, Terry, you and yep. I, yep. we live for the cooking. Exactly. And even though we're professional cooks and run restaurants, when I go home, my favorite thing to do on my day off is get that duck on the rotisserie, put it yep. over a pan of potatoes, let it slow turn while I drink a little whiskey. Yep. But that connection to the cooking process is really important to me. Right. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yes, I think. And there's a lot of joy there. And once you do, you are able to, I think that we're able to trim off the extra, the distractions and the stress of it. And we're able to get back to that joyful place of enjoying the process. Then it becomes a self-replenishing tank Mm -hmm. of energy, right? Because then all of a sudden, yes, pulling together dinner is work. It it is work. It's Mm -hmm. an effort. But it can also be an effort that leaves you feeling excited. Um, and leave your cup feeling more full than empty. And I, I think also making you feel good about yourself and what you've done for your family. Yeah. Yeah, making Absolutely. sure make, making yeah, sure making sure they enjoy it too. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. Uh, so let's go, let's go through a couple of things that you think are the easiest and maybe even the least expensive uh, options. The first one that came to my mind looking at a few of the pictures in your book was pork shoulder or pork butt. Oh, goodness. That is such a great one. You know, when you, uh, it's depending on how many folks you're cooking for at home, I have, there's two adults in my home and two toddlers. And so we essentially eat enough for two and a half people, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, when I make a pork shoulder, which is anywhere between five and sometimes upwards of seven or eight pounds, I think, good goodness, we're going to be eating carnitas for five days <laughs> <laughs> because it makes so much uh, so much meat. And so instead of saying rinse and repeat, we're going to have leftovers over and over again, uh, I think that the magic here, and it's a very affordable option, is to prepare that pork shoulder in the most basic form. And so I say let's cook it down, make it shreddable, and then take that basic shred of protein and divide it up into a couple different meals. So let's say, yeah, we might have carnitas for one meal. And then meal two, 
let's totally rethink it and come up with a sticky honey garlic pork that we're going to serve over fluffy white rice. It's the same protein. We're not doing anything extra special to it, but we get a totally different meal experience. And so we get to kind of just start to tip away at what might be food boredom. Yeah, the third one could be a whole tomato in a can, quickly sauteed with some onions, and then add your pulled pork in there and do that on top of a pasta, rigatoni or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many ways to make that sound uh, or make that taste awesome that you can really uh, just by internationalizing it. One night it's a curry, one night it's a taco, and next thing you know, you don't realize you've had pork five nights in a row. It, it, that, that particular, <laughs> yes, exactly. yeah, that particular cut though, even cooked, freezes beautifully. So yeah. you could put away a pint of uh, cooked pork carnitas and then pull that out two weeks later and have tacos again. Great, absolutely. And you know, it's actually another tip I have for folks: if you are freezing food for your uh, for later, is to freeze it in quantities that you actually need need for a meal, right? One dinner, right? Because sometimes I'll slip into the temptation of cooking an entire pork shoulder and freezing the whole thing. But the odds of me pulling out that entire shredded five pounds of pork are not very great. But right. I am much more likely of pulling out a pound of pork. Right. No, that's a very intelligent way to think, for sure. We only have a minute or so left. Uh, is there another uh, item that you love to cook and then to cook again throughout the week? You know, one that I find is extremely friendly for uh, this application is going to, are we going to be ground proteins? Uh, so ground beef, ground uh, turkey, chicken, pork, you name it. I think that if we're able, it's not a whole lot more effort to crumble and brown three pounds of beef in a pan than it is one pound. Mm-hmm. And so I say, let's, let's go ahead and add in a couple more pounds. And also, if you're moving through the grocery store, and you see that there's a deal on your favorite ground beef, right? Then that kind of tees you up to think, oh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to brown three pounds of it, divide it up into a couple different dinners. Because if we re-crisp it, as long as we know that we're going to try to introduce a different or improved texture for the second meal, we can really get away with having a wonderful meal experience, but only having to cook that protein once. Right. And you can, all, of course, make some meatballs and put them in the freezer ready to go. Before you brown it. Before you brown it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Brilliant. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. Good luck on your book. We've been talking with Cassie Joy Garcia. The book is called Cook Once. The whole idea is to, while you're cooking once, you're kind of setting yourself up for many meals after that. Uh, plus, when you brown all three pounds of meat in that one pan... You only have one pan to clean. That's right. <laughs> Instead of three nights in <laughs> <That's> a row. <laughs> I, and I do the dishes in my house, so that I'm always concerned about that. <laughs> uh, thank you, Cassie. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. All right. Coming up, it's sharp, sharp knives. Are they worth it? Is it good to have uh, the technique down to make different cuts with these knives? We're going to talk about that when we get back here on the Hot Stove Society show, Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. You know, one of the things we like to do here at the Hot Stove Society is teach you some skills that you can take with you for the rest of your cooking career. That's right. Uh, my name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rochero, the chef in the hat. And we're going to talk a little bit about our knife skills class that we do here and why it's important to have these skills. I think some people kind of blow it off as in, I know how to cut a potato or I know how to cut a carrot and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but there's so many things you can do with different knife skills and different knives that it's fun to be taught those things. It's fun to actually Correct. see what the possibilities are. So the number one rule for me 
is the knife need to be bigger than the task? Because often you see people in the kitchen trying to cut a big piece of whatever bread or whatever, and they have a small knife. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you need to make sure your bread knife is bigger than your piece of bread. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to cut it properly. And most importantly, it's dangerous not to have the right size. Right. So that's the number one rule. And the number two rule is... What's my favorite brand of knife, which is a question, you know, you and I get all the time. All the time. And mine is shop. Just make sure your knife are sharp. It's not important, the brand, as much as the sharpness of your knife. Because a, a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife. Right, because you're all of a sudden you're pushing harder, you're pulling harder. You're, and when you squeeze your finger. Turns your hand, <laughs> and then next thing you know, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, those are the two advice. Other than that, just keep your knife sharp. Just a few run on your steel uh, if the knife has been sharpened correctly to start with, a few run on your steel and learn how to do that, the, you know, the angle and all that. Learn from a sharpener. He will tell you how to do it. And that doesn't really, I'll just say, because it doesn't really sharpen your knife, it hones Correct. the sharpness on Correct. your knife. It keeps the, the steel sharpness doesn't, alive. Uh, when you sharpen a knife, like on a stone, you're actually taking some metal off. Correct. Whereas a steel will just hone it to back to a place. Correct. Yeah. It will keep it sharp, basically. Right. It will it will resharpen it. So Okay, so then let's jump in, Terry. Um We've got a sharp knife. Uh, we know I, I'm a big fan of serrated knives, like right. on tomatoes or Correct. even when I'm uh, skinning a cantaloupe or all sorts of things. But uh, let's talk about the cuts that you make with knives and why they're so uh, important. So um, we have a mince. Right. So what would you consider a mince? And then what, where would you use something that was mince? So, for example, you're finishing a dish and uh, let's say an omelette. You have a cheese mushroom omelette. You want to finish it with some freshness. You are going to have some herbs, parsley, chives. maybe even maybe even basil if you have some yeah. basil, and some chives. You're going to mince those herbs. Mince the herbs means you're going to cut them in a in a. You're going to slice the herb, not chop the herb. Mm-hmm. The difference between chopping and dicing or slicing is one is a sliding movement. The other one is a banging movement. When you bang green herbs that are fresh green herb. All you're doing is bruising them, and bruising them means you're extracting and you're losing some of the flavor at the same time. But most importantly, you well. In I'm, s- I'm giving Terry the stink eye because you don't lose any flavor. Well, you it's the same herb and under you dissipate. You just, it bruises the greens. Well, what? what I, well, of course it bruises it, but you don't lose flavor when you bruise it. A lot of times you bruise herbs just to bring out the flavor. But well, what you're going to leave on so the my table? My point is, my point is, I, I agree with you, except for the fact that. Um, to me, it's about mouthfeel also. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so mincing would be something about a quarter of an inch at the most, not even, no, thinner eighth, than that. Yeah, thinner than An that. eighth of an inch. Yeah. And at the thickest, and then you slice your herbs that way, and then you sprinkle that on top of you. When you mince, you're trying to get flavor from that herb. You're trying to have it as a texture as well as a flavor. Mm-hmm. So that's why you mince the herb. Also, because you don't want to bruise them, you want to just slice them so the entire flavor is there. So <laughs> we could go on and on just about this subject because we just uh, we could just disagree for a lot. Like when you make basil pesto, you're pureeing the herb. That's a different, you're not, but you're not losing any flavor. No, no, but you're also okay. Not let's looking. go on to uh, chopped. What when you say uh, I want. Chopped celery, I want a brunoise, you say, in Correct. France, right? Correct. Uh, so tell us what that is. So a brunoise is the smallest dice you can possibly make. So is that quarter inch or is that eighth Oh, no, inch? no, smaller than that. It's a, a brunoise is like an eighth, if at grandmost, an eighth of an inch. It's small. It's very small, basically small cube. 
And the reason that this is used, again, uh, often it's used as a garnish in consommé or in consommé, which is a clear broth that mm -hmm. you've made uh, from scratch, basically, or you can buy, I guess. And, uh, you know, you get all these stocks and you want, you don't want those big paisan cut or big texture in there. You want it to be refined. Right, that's because the hot broth is what's cooking those those vegetables. Correct. And it's instantly cooked. By having cooked. them so small, they right. just cook right away. Yeah. And okay, you, let's jump up into a um, julienne. So julienne. And, and what kind of knife would you use for a julienne? So for julienne, I would use my chef's knife. Mm -hmm. And by the way, in most of the leafy cases, I use a bigger knife, mainly because leaves are cumbersome. They're big. You want to roll them gently like a cigarette or, you know, roll into mm -hmm. like this. And then you want to slice very thin. Yeah, but that's chiffonade. That's chiffonade. But my point is, that's what I try to do. Even when I'm chopping, I try to reassemble my leaves so then everything comes out in one line and then I shift the whole pack and then slice the mm -hmm. other way. Mm -hmm. Now I've got the beginning of my chopped herbs. And I rarely, I don't ever do what I was told when I was apprentice, which is how you chop parsley, you know, tac, 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 tac. Uh -huh. I don't ever do that again. I, I don't think I've done that in 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I slice to the thinnest. I keep turning the pack a quarter turn each time and then keep dicing and until it's totally fine and chopped to the way I want it. All right, let's go back up to julienne. So julienne would be, let's say you're taking a carrot. Uh, you know, today, it, the beautiful thing about today is you have mandolin, you have all these different instruments where you can actually make julienne by machine. Now, wash your hands on a mandolin, but with a knife, it's basically first you make a slice, so you have a, um, you know, an inch and a half wide slice, and then you want it to make, tip it to a distance of about two inches long, and then you want to take your knife and f use your fingernail as the butt to the knife, and then gently slice and slightly mm -hmm. back up with your fingers as you're doing it, so you have this thin hair-like um, carrot slice. So we've got some essential knives in the kitchen right now. We've got a chef knife that we talked about, yeah. a bread knife, yeah. uh, a paring knife is good just to have. Yeah. I don't use a paring knife very much, honestly. I think well, I, I use it mostly to open up. Like I use a paring knife to do things like peeling quince, like I just did yeah, that yesterday. I use a peeler That's for that. I'm rem huh? I, I use a peeler for yeah, that generally. With a quince? You bet I do. Oh. Okay, let's, I want to uh, get one knife in here that we haven't talked about, a boning knife, which Correct. I think is so important. Very. I probably use a boning knife more than any other knife in the kitchen. Oh. I use a boning knife every time I take a whole chicken and cut mm -hmm. it into pieces. So it's important to have that little long tip, right, to Correct. get in and around the joints. Also a very hard tip, you know, because yeah. they are... Well, yeah, they make them in difference, right? They make different knife, boning knife in hard and in soft. Right. Soft is more for fish. And hard is more for meat. Right. The bones are much sturdier and harder. And when you go around that cage, you want to make sure your knife is not bending because you're going to take some of the meat out. But if you're going into a, a knife store, you're going to ask for a flexible boning knife or Correct. a stiff boning knife. Correct. And the flexible, I, I never use it on fish. I, for some reason, I always use my big uh, sabatier. What do you call yeah. those? Curved edge, yeah. big sabatier. But uh, I use the flexible boning knife on things like poussin, Game hen, quail, sure. the small, small birds. Smaller bird, yeah. And then uh, I use a stiff boning knife when I'm getting into duck and chicken. Correct. And then when I'm getting into big beef cuts, there's another boning knife, and I don't know what it's called, but you see it in butcher shops. Saber-like? Yeah, it's a little bit saber-like, but it's also short. But it's a thicker, heavier blade, and right. you can really go around a beef knuckle or so something of that. Yeah, they're all different boning knife. They're, they're, they're knife, boning knife more for cutting, and they are boning knife more for butchering, like right. for boning, you know, getting against the bone and all that. So those those are the ones you choose. And, uh, 
you know, if you get deep into butchering, a cleaver is also the other one that is necessary to go against the big bones. But right. that's if you get really into butchering. All right, here we go. We got another whole hour of our show. Uh, next next hour includes uh, National Seafood Month with our friends from Bristol Bay, Alaska. Yummy chanterelles and food for thought, tasty trivia, brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs. You're listening to Hot Stove Society on Cairo ninety seven three FM. Welcome back to our number two of the Hot Stove Society radio show on Cairo. My name is Tom Douglas. And mine is Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Chef in the hat. And Terry, you're getting ready to go off to California next That's week. That's right. Is that right? California. After the show next week, yes. You'll see Willie Nelson. That's right. Where's on he playing? On the road again. On the road again. You know, he's going to be on the road for only so many more times. So. Exactly. Oh, man, that's just harsh. We have a big hour. Yeah. We're going to do Food for uh, Thought Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Rub With Love. We're going to do, uh, talk National Seafood Month, which we're going to get into right now. And we're going to uh, uh, talk about chanterelles, because with the rain, we finally got enough rain to bring up the chanterelles. That's right. Now we just need those sunny days in between, right, for right. them to really pop. Not too hot, but just hot enough for the mushroom to pop. Exactly. All right, October is National Seafood Month, and to celebrate... Uh, local fishing organizations like the Port of Seattle and the Seattle Propeller Club have joined together through Seafood 101, a uh, campaign to promote seafood and all of That's its right. glory. Uh, the goals of the campaign are to encourage folks to eat more seafood and discover its nutritional value. Uh, also to highlight the commitment to sustainability that I think you and I both really feel strongly about and to celebrate the economic value of the maritime and fishing industries and one of the things that uh, we've talked about over the years as uh, we've been, you know, we've both been active, but I've been really active in trying to stop Pebble Mine up there in Bristol Correct. Bay. Uh, we're talking about how uh, eating wild saves wild. And in a funny way, that seems counterintuitive. But um, to, to me, I've always felt like you have to create an economy around the fish so that people don't choose mining because they still have to put their kids in Correct. school. They still have to feed their families. So they need a job. And so I'd rather them have a wild fish job than a mining job. Correct. Right? So it's the same for anything else that is organic, agricultural, or any of that facet. It's, it's better to save and eat wild and sponsor wild right. than it is to not. Because if you don't, they are going to do something else. People have to make a living no matter what. They have right. to support their family. Right. So it's important that they do it. Give them the option to do it in the right way. And it sounds a little bit, when I say it out loud like that, it sounds a little bit like I'm holding the strings of the puppeteer, you know? Yeah. Like I'm telling people what to do, and I'm really not. To me, it's a humanity issue. Correct. Uh, I'm talking about us as one as on, on Earth and the human nature of, of this process. For anybody who's not in Seattle or in, in Washington, if you've never had wild salmon... Once you have it, you'll understand what we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Just All offer, right. offer uh, it to yourself. We're celebrating the return, not only of the fish. We had an amazing run this year in Bristol Bay. But we're celebrating a return to the show of Capo, uh, Captain Michael Jackson. He's the captain owner of the F.V. Kelly and board president of Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. And Lil, Lilani Dunn is here. She's the marketing director of the Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. Welcome both. Of you to welcome back. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for having us. Nice to see you. 
Uh, and actually, they just took off their masks because they're 18 feet apart. And uh, it is nice to see everyone. Yeah. Uh, tell us about what's going on in Bristol Bay. You showed me that incredible video of uh, that's actually fish that got through the 600 Bristol Bay fishermen. Is that correct? Well, there's 1,865 close personal friends that fish in Bristol Bay. <laughs> and they did get through, but there's a good reason. There were 66 million fish that returned this year. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you, if you want to imagine what that looks like, look at a picture of the United States outline. And head to tail, it goes around the United States twice. Wow. 66 million fish. Mm-hmm. Now, so. the, the problem with that is people who are going to listen to that are going to think, so what's the problem? There's, well, what's the don't... problem with the salmon? There's no problem with salmon. <laughs> well, I, I can explain in Bristol Bay, it's a little different. Our habitat is absolutely perfect. Correct. You can't improve it. You can only ruin it. And so we're trying to keep, as Chef Tom has mentioned, he's been a tireless advocate for Bristol Bay wild sockeye and an, an opponent of the mine. And I, I want to thank you as an individual and from the organization. Um, our habitat's perfect, so it allows us to have these kind of runs up there. The problem with the Washington is we didn't protect our habitat. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what the difference is, is the management up there is phenomenal because they have pristine habitat to work with. Right. Yeah. Lilani, your job uh, seems not to take anything away from your job, but when I, I cut into this fish all the time down at Seatown and we go through tons of this uh, wild Bristol Bay sockeye, your job is pretty easy in some ways because your product is so incredible. That's right. It's It's up to us to pretty much ruin as well it's mm-hmm. a perfect protein lots of nutrients extremely delicious the rest of the country though tom needs to know about <laughs> wild bristol bay sockeye right. so that's where a lot of our work is cut out for us and so what are you doing to make that happen we partner up with different retailers around the nation uh, and we are starting after the last uh very difficult year or two for restaurant businesses, we're starting to look at different markets and work with chefs in different regions. Mm-hmm. So we just completed our second DC restaurant week. It was really cool to work with independent chefs out there. A lot of them shared some complications with the supply chain in getting Alaska Bristol Bay sockeye mm-hmm. to them. And so we're hoping to smooth that process out. You and everybody else. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And uh, it, it, they used to have kind of controversial stories of not, of, you know, having fish named wild that was not actually wild and so on and so forth. So you have some work cut out for yourself. You definitely have some good work to do. And, but I agree that, you know, you go 100 miles east of here and, you know, wild salmon is like, it's not foundable. And I'm like, why isn't it? You know, it's like once you've tried it once, I guarantee you, you'll, you'll never change your mind on that. Well, I think part of the frustration is that, uh, for me anyway, as a chef, is that there's still this feeling out there that a previously frozen fish is not as good as a fresh fish. And uh, it is just not the case, right? right. A, a fish that's frozen at sea in the peak condition is much better than a fish that's been making its way around the country in a truck or in the belly of an airplane uh, two, three weeks later, getting onto the grocery shelf. Uh, so you really have to think thoroughly uh, when you start to thinking what's fresh and what's not. That's right. There's a huge education opportunity there, not only for chefs and for retailers, but also for end users. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the part of the challenge there is that uh, cooking a, a previously frozen piece of fish, it cooks almost twice as fast as a fresh fish does. And so uh, there's some of that challenge there where people tend to overcook it, 
least right. that's, that's my theory. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk more about that, the research and education programs to ensure long-term care of the, of the product, and uh, the actual season. How did it go this year, and what are we going to do and with the, all the fish, and, and uh, how do we make sure that we continue to have record harvest up in Bristol Bay? That next on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. We're talking Bristol Bay salmon for the whole next segment, near and dear to my heart. Uh, we've had some good news lately that the EPA, EPA is is working towards permanently banning uh, the mining in the headwaters of the last great sockeye salmon run for the second time on Earth. No, for many times, for many times. <laughs> Every administration had changed this a little bit, but we'd like to get it done in a permanent way. I'm not sure. How you have to do that. But do you know that, Michael? I do. It's through legislative action. Okay. And so we've got Senator Murkowski championing that cause, trying to get long-term permanent protection on top of the 404C, which is the Clean Water Act. Right. That can be politically adjusted, as we've seen. So once we get legislative action for permanent long-term protections, then we can rest a little easier. Okay. That's the voice of Michael Jackson. He's the captain owner of the F. V. Kelly, and board president of the uh, Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. You know, when uh, we produced or helped produce movies like The Breach or The Wild, uh, it shows a lot of the fishing that's happening up in Bristol Bay and uh, makes a big deal of the stand down that all the boats have to do to let a certain amount of fish get through so we can continue the management of a good fishery uh, year to year to year. Uh, what's that? You know, I think people around here generally think about they see the little boats out in the sound and they're out there salmon fishing and they don't really perceive what a commercial fishery is. Can you tell people what it's like out there when there's 600 of you going after the, the fish? Well, first, I, I want to address what you mentioned as far as managing the fishery. We have world class managers. We're setting records. Nowhere else on the face of the earth are you setting harvest records mm-hmm. and return records. And that's based on pristine habitat, habitat and then how our managers manage the districts for optimum sustainable yield. Yeah, we stand down. We have to sit on our anchor and watch fish jump around us going up the river. But we know it's for the long-term benefit and sustainability of the fishery. Right. So what's it like to buy into Bristol Bay, have a boat, and have to go compete against... Some very aggressive fishermen. <laughs> it's a challenge. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> the older I get, the less I want to battle the front lines of the fish, and I'll just play the infield and bat for average. But it's it's a challenge because everyone up there has a finite window of opportunity. It's a very short fishery, and you have to fish at times maybe you don't want to fish because that's the only chance you get to get the fish. Right. Uh, we all have very good equipment. We take very good care of our fish. Uh, we refrigerate the seawater so they go in it. We float them so they're not rubbing against each other. And then we deliver every 12 hours at the most. So our fish are delivered fresh. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you don't stay in the ocean for two weeks? and We know. stay on our boats the season, but we deliver each night to a tender, a larger Correct. boat. Correct. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's the difference, I think, between fresh and... Uh, because some fresh fish or so-called fresh fish are not necessarily as fresh. Yeah, correct. And I think taking care of the product, first of all, I think education is where it starts, knowing where the product, what the product needs to do in order to be sustainable. Yeah. I think that's what you guys have been conquering the whole you know, education part so well is by teaching people why Bristol Bay is so important. But what's going on in Bristol Bay? I mean, the fish comes out and comes in. 
comes back in, those are extremely important routes to, to follow and to not be, you know, a dog and eat everything the first day and have nothing else left for, the, for anybody else. No, it's, it's, it's well, well managed. And it's hard to manage the largest migration on Earth. Yeah. It is. It's the largest migration. Sure it is. And so these guys and gals that manage our fishery are constantly tweaking and adjusting when we get to fish and how long we get to fish. And they do a, an incredible job. Do most fishermen trust those managers? As in, it must be hard when, you're, when that's your living. And you yes. say, no, no, you can't go out today. You've got to wait till tomorrow. I, I mean, they're, they're, there's always going to be disagreements between the fishermen and the, and the managers as far as how much time, especially when it's really good fishing and they say, that's it. It's like, well, I'd yeah. rather keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it must be really hard. It is hard, but it's, people do trust the managers. The right. answer is yes. That's important that people understand that. Okay, so what happens from there? You, you, uh, these are purseaners out there, right? No, we're gill netters. You're gill netters. Drift okay, gill so nets. You bring the fish onto the boat. You float them until you get to the factory tender. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put them onto the tender, and then what happens? The tender will then take it to the plants, uh, the bigger shore-based plants. Some have floating processors where they'll offload those fish and they'll be processed in Alaska. So they're catted, gutted, uh, split. Uh, they, actually, the one that I have here has been pinboned too. That's really pinboned nice. out yeah. in Alaska, and more than likely within 24 to 36 hours of the time it left the deck of the boat. Right. Wow! And so then they go into a cryovac machine. Which is uh, takes the oxygen away, and they start to live in a state of permanence right there. You could, you could, with the nature of the cryovac these days, you could probably keep it for three or four years if you wanted to. You, we don't, but no. Yeah, it's it's impressive how things have changed, and and with that cryovac technology that's changed over the years, we're, we as an organization are looking towards ways to make our packaging more sustainable. We're looking for a cryovac film that is recyclable mm-hmm. that is compostable or maybe even dare i say edible right so that's a goal for us is is to to be as sustainable as our fish how cool would it be if you could use a salmon skin to make that the wrapper <laughs> go fund me go fund me <laughs> that would be awesome because i do i do feel it's tragic when i you know if i have a catering event or something where i have to take out a hundred sides of salmon yeah when you see all that wrapping yeah. i mean all, all those days. all those plants who take the meat and put it in can and all that that skin is perfectly fine. Yeah. All right, now, Lilani, it's your job. You're the marketing director. Uh, you've got this fish. It's in cryovac. Uh, it's perfect. You can't do much to it other than let it thaw during shipping and all that sort of thing. So what do you do with that fish now? How do you get people aware of it? The whole year, not just the season, the whole year we are trying to preach that Bristol Bay sockeye salmon is healthful. It's for all meals, all bodies. And it's not as challenging as you might think Mm -hmm. to cook at home. And for restaurant experiences, if more chefs, more restaurants were to offer it, I think that would also help make it less challenging or less intimidating and inspire people to pick up a frozen sockeye or frozen portions the next time they're they're Uh at their local retailer and try something at home. Yeah, I think think salmon is actually one of those fish that's actually easier to bake or you know to learn i I would always recommend for people to bake the salmon first as a first trial yeah and use a meat thermometer and then poke in there then when you get the temperature you want to get to 120 and 125 you're done that's all you have to do is put it in the oven there's a lot yeah there's a lot of visual cues too that 
the well, your, no, your that too. But as a beginner, you know, just use your yeah. mid thermometer and then bake the. Uh, so you don't have to worry. I mean, cooking in the pan is harder. It's a little bit more practice. But cooking in the oven, just bake it. Right. It's quite simple and and it's very efficient. And salmon is a forgiving meat. It's not like you're gonna you're gonna mess it up if you just slightly over or slightly under. You're not gonna mess it up. It's a really good forgiving meat. So. Yeah. You know, halibut is less forgiven to me, I think, because there's no fat. So it doesn't have that forgiveness as much. But salmon is definitely a forgiving item. So I you know, encourage anybody to try it. Yeah. One of the problems, though, I think for for you all is that if it's not in the fresh fish case where you can say, I want two pieces that are four ounces each or six ounces each, people sometimes have to buy the whole side. And we just had an author on the show earlier in the show that talks about how cooking a larger product right and then you have your fresh pieces tonight but you go ahead and cook the rest of the salmon and you make you use it instead of tuna right yeah you just make a salmon salad instead of a tuna salad tacos and or, or tacos or there's all kinds of ways to use that in a different way for the rest of the week so buy, go ahead and buy the half it's so easy buy the half slack it out uh, don't over you know even if you overcook it if you're making salmon salad you know just mayonnaise matter. is going to moisten it right up yeah. so Lots of ways to use the Bristol Bay salmon. I want to thank you both. It's Seafood 101 uh, is the name of the campaign. Can you find that online somewhere? How do people find out where they can buy Bristol Bay salmon? Ah, yes. We have a very handy site. It's find.bristolbaysockeye.org. And you can type in your zip code, and it, uh, it lists retailers, direct marketers, people who are at local fish markets, Shipping directly to you as well as wholesalers and suppliers. Right. And I know I see it at my local Costco all the time. Yes, yes. yes. Costco, Whole Foods, lots of major retail. Good. I'm glad it's getting out there and, and getting uh, utilized because if we don't buy it, then again, if you don't put an economy around that fish, next thing you know, they're going to choose mining instead. We don't want that. No. As a human, no. not just as Tom. We, <laughs> as a human, we don't want that. All right, uh, our next segment includes the idea of what to do on the salmon, maybe? Some fresh chanterelles. We're going to talk about that mm. when we come back. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. All right, we are back in the kitchen on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society. We're coming to you from uh, the kitchen at the Hot Stove, which is located in the beautiful Hotel Andra here in downtown Seattle. Yes, we are at the world headquarters of the Hot Stove Society. That's right. Uh, the Andra is, man, I, I uh, was gone for nine days, and, you know, they're remodeling here, and it's gotten coming so far. It's starting to look really beautiful, and if you ever want to do a staycation here in downtown Seattle, this would be a fun place to do it. You yeah. take a class, stay right upstairs at the Andra. Uh, maybe uh, Lola's opening in a few weeks. Maybe go down for a little breakfast at Lola. There we go. There you go. Chantrell, chef. Yes. You're starting to see them. I, I've been seeing them for a while, but they yep. haven't had a ton of flavor. Right. Um, now I'm starting to concern with they might get too wet. So if you go to the grocery store now, they're likely to be dry because it Correct. has been fairly dry. But when they get wet, I mean, we have, there's two ways to deal with all this. So tell me how you like to handle chanterelles the best and what's your favorite time. So my, my favorite is when they're dry, I like to just saute them in brown butter. Quickly. And quickly, and then add them to whatever I'm cooking, you know, whether it's a steak, whether it's a, a salmon, um, you know, as we were just talking, 
or just a plain old sorted vegetable. I like my chanterelle to be with things like bok choy. If, I, if I'm going to do some bok choy, I'm going to slice the bok choy. I'm going to pan saute it in a little bit of sesame oil, add all the chanterelle on the floor of the pan, and then leave, leave them alone, even slightly covered for a minute or two, mm-hmm. and then cook the whole thing down. And then I finish that with uh, either some chili crisp like we talk about sometime or even a little bit of toasted sesame oil added to that mm-hmm. just to give it a finishing um, flavor. I'm surprised uh, you went that direction because to me, like uh, chanterelles, it's hard to get their honest flavor through all that distraction. It's more, yes, I agree with you. I agree that it, it definitely the toasted sesame oil will definitely cover a lot. Mm-hmm. So you have to be gentle with that. Um, I just... I just like the you know when you, when the when the chanterelle is cooked and when you bite in it. To me, I like the idea of adding the, the slight toasted sesame seed uh, flavor to it. You're um, going to laugh at this because I think chanterelles are done best in more of a French style. Uh, I know that's funny, isn't it? No, 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 no. But, I, uh, I agree I think with like you. When you are making a little saute of shallots and fresh thyme and butter and chanterelles. To me, that's when they're at their best because Correct. those ingredients really elevate the flavor of the chanterelle, which can right. be very light. Right. They're not like a shiitake mushroom no. that has a good, strong, woodsy flavor to it. Right. Uh, they are very lightly flavored. And so I like to combine them um, with things that are equally lightly flavored. Correct. So, for example, fresh corn right. is a beautiful combination. Sure. Fresh corn, cream, shallots, thyme, chanterelles yeah. is a beautiful combination. Absolutely. Uh, or just by themselves. Like uh, We just cooked this Bristol Bay sockeye on the stovetop in butter. And just for that last three minutes of the cook to pop in some thinly sliced chanterelles would have been a fun finish sure. for that fish. Sure, sure, and sure. so you get a bite of the chanterelle itself... Even the salmon's a little strong for the mushroom, Correct. but when you get a simple bite of that chanterelle and the butter combination, bliss, I tell you, I tell blissful, you, I tell I, you, blissful. I tell you another place it goes well. We always, I always talk about this, but an omelet, yeah. you do a nice omelet, you need to saute your mushroom first, mm-hmm. then you add the egg to it. Oh man, it is sensational in an omelet. Now this is, as we were referring earlier in a shop your, shop your, your knives earlier in the segment, um... It is one place where you want to make sure your, your chanterelles are sliced fairly thin before you cook them because you want the texture and you also want it to be cooked all the way, not be like a big chunk of chanterelle in your omelet. Right. Uh, well, there's that. There's also, it's hard to get the inside. Sometimes they're so dry and firm, it's hard to cook the inside Correct. without slicing them. Correct. Yeah. So you want to make sure you slice your chanterelle that way. That's when you need your sharp knife. But now, are there any wormy issues with chanterelles like there are on some mushrooms? Very, very seldomly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I've because you say that in porcini's a lot, right? Correct. Yeah. Porcini and morels are the two big culprit of worms. But otherwise, as far as uh, seps too, obviously, porcini, yes, they are the same family. But the the chanterelle is never an issue. Of, I've rarely, rarely see an issue yeah, with I've the chanterelle, it, yeah. even when they're wet. And that's another thing, is now we're going to get into the wet season of the chanterelle. Now, that's a completely different treatment. I don't normally take very wet chanterelle and throw them in a pan. Usually, either I dry them overnight. And in How's an, that? How do you I put them, them on a sheet pan in my oven. No, no turn on the oven, just the heat of the oven. We have a pilot uh, that runs constantly in the oven. You put that in the oven at, you know, it's probably 100 degrees in there. And then you just leave it overnight, so then some of the moisture of the mushroom can go. Now, the mushroom will never, ever have the same texture once it's been wet like that. It will never go back to 
uh, you know, be a normal dry chanterelle. So you have to treat it differently. And usually when I look at those mushrooms, I think of a different preparation. First thing that comes to mind is a soup because it's easy to make a nice chanterelle soup, like a duxelle of sh- uh, onion, sweated, add the chanterelle, cook the whole thing down, a nice little vegetable stock or chicken stock right on top of that, cook it down a little bit, a little dollar of cream, creme fraiche, and then boom, you've got a wonderful little chanterelle soup. Uh-huh. Now from here, my advice is put it in a Vitamix or in a blender, blend the whole thing up, and then you have a pureed chanterelle soup. You know, that's a good time to use my, this is a little self-promotion here, to use my mushroom rub. I was going to say uh, that. I have the exotic earlier. mushroom rub, and it's, it does have porcini in it, but it's like a super gravy helper. Right. And so right. Uh, it, it enhances the mushroom kind of quality about it. Right. right. A lot of people want to add, you know, it's something like that. They want to add truffle oil. No, and no, no, it's no. really, it, to me, it's a little bit like fake coconut flavor like you know you know how right. sometimes coconut flavoring tastes like copper tone suntan lotion smells right. uh that's the way i feel about truffle oil is that it often kind of smells like what you think it's supposed to smell like but it's very chemically and and not right. at all real right exactly yeah. and one thing i would say often when i use in when i make a um, chanterelle soup or mushroom soup is sherry i was talking about sherry earlier mm-hmm. sherry wine is a good and then so because it's got that somehow it's got that nuttiness flavor that finishes into the the mushroom and that's a nice accompaniment it's nice because it's oxidized right that sherry is typically a a very oxidized correct uh, blend of different uh, years and in cooking that turns into a nuttiness kind of idea Mm. which is which is really nice another one when you talk about oil you know finishing your soup with a little bit of toasted argan oil Mm -hmm. is nutty fabulous nutty and everything and uh, uh, fresh herbs at the end of finishing a soup like this is always Quite essential of a, you know, fresh herb and a, and a squeeze of, just a light squeeze of lemon. Mm-hmm. We'll just take that soup and totally lift it up a notch. Um, crostinis, you know, take some nice bread, make some nice cube, fried in olive oil, and then put that into your soups. Um, is always a nice and then right. so for your I like taking soup. those crostini and I spread them with a little fresh goat cheese, a little fresh yeah. chove. Yeah. And then you put a little mushroom mm. duxelle. So you just take your chanterelles, you cook them. Uh, like I just said, with shallots and thyme yep. and stuff, but then you uh, hit it with a little bit of cream, and then you give it a, a, a just a quick uh, pulse in your food processor, and now you've got a little duck cell. And if you want to hand chop your mushrooms, you can. You don't yeah. even need to get the food processor dirty. But uh, uh, I tend to make duck cell and put it in my, you know, I put it in little four-ounce packs in my freezer when the mushrooms are out and about yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I can pull that out and make mushroom gravy, make mushroom nice. soup, make mushroom anything by having uh, sautéed my mushrooms in butter and then put them in the freezer. I keep, you can't put them in the freezer without cooking them first. Correct. Just I don't do it. I all that. my mushroom stem in a container in my freezer, and every time I make a stock, it goes straight in. Or yeah. if I want to make a sauce, I add it to a base of a sauce. Like, for example, if I just remove the steak out of the pan or pork chop out of a pan, I take a little bit of shallots. and I add some butter, a little bit of shallots, sweat that up, add those mushroom stem chop top, put that in there that had been previously frozen, and then add a little red wine, reduce that down, a little stock or a nugget of butter, and then you have a yeah. wonderful little sauce to add to your pork I chop. I think or you and I go about shallots in a little different way uh, because we both love them. 
we both love them, but you tend to go translucent on your shallots, and I almost always put a brown on them. Actually, and, I go, in this so, case, I would go brown. Okay. I, would, I would go brown. I would right. not go translucent. Translucent is only when, like, for that's example. That's when you say sweat it. You say that to me is a translucent shallot. Sweating is translucent. But I, caram- I go further than that. You I caram- caramelize them okay, as yeah. well. You know, and because to me it changes. Go- it's dynamic. The oh, yeah. difference. Oh yeah, it's, uh, of what it brings to the shallots are definitely good when they're cooked uh, brown and caramelized. Okay. They're delicious okay. or fried. I mean, I do fried shallots all the time with mm-hmm. just a little bit of olive oil. It's a delicious product. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. I would say Socio Brothers in the market in Pike uh-huh. Place Market. They're not the cheapest, but they have the best. Variety of wild mushrooms this time of year. They, I was just there on last week filming so, for French Channel um, at Socios, and they had chanterelle, and they were thirty nine bucks a pound. Yeah, they're not cheap there, but they are usually in pretty good shape. They were the, gorgeous. They almost always have them. You can count on them yeah. having whatever's available out Mike there. Mike was there, and you know, beautiful, beautiful, uh, beautiful product. I mean, you you will not go wrong with that product for sure. And I will tell you that you know we often laud the park. Place market, but this time of year, they need your business. They I need mean, absolutely, and uh, it's a classic case of use it or lose it. Uh, if you want a T-shirt stand down there, then don't ever come down and buy mushrooms. But right. if you do like the fact that there's butcher shops and produce stands and you have fish shops, you have to support it uh, at least once or twice a year. Correct. Make yourself come down and do the trip and come Super off fun. season when the Super tourists fun. are not here because that's yeah. when they need you. Exactly. It's finally time for your favorite episode of Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. Pamela has got the questions all lined up for us. Uh, Kat Gibbons, uh, our sales director here, former chef at Palace Kitchen, is going to be our victim this week. Uh, And uh, we'll be right back on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. Tom Douglas here. Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And Terry, we have fresh victim in our in our <laughs> presence. Uh, Kat Gibbons, who's the sales director here at the Hot Stove, uh, former chef around our company, been with us on and off for a long time. Mm-hmm. We love her to death, and she's getting ready to take her pregnancy leave. Was it is, it? is that what it's called? A pregnancy leave? Maternity leave. Maternity leave. I knew. I knew it didn't. You don't leave. You don't leave to get yeah. pregnant. You don't. Leave. Yeah. Hopefully, the pregnancy will eventually be over. Yeah. You don't leave to get pregnant. You leave to give birth. Okay. Fine. Whatever. Uh, anyway, we wanted to get her before she took her time off, uh, just because just to torture her. Uh, our Rub with Love Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub with Love Small Batch Spice Rubs. They're versatile. We make sauces and mustards that bring extra layers of flavor to just about any meal. Use them generously because then you buy more <laughs> in creative ways beyond the label description. Just like I said earlier, our mushroom rub is a great gravy helper. Look for them at fine grocers locally. And for our listeners around the country, AJ stores in the Phoenix area carry some. I buy them there often. Kowalski's in Minneapolis areas. Louis Gourmet in, in the, on the beach in Delaware. They're all over the place. Or of course, you can find them at TomDouglas.com. Pamela, can you tell us uh, how we play this game and who's our winner today of the Fine Rub Package? Our three contestants, and I asked Kat to come because she's very food knowledgeable, so I'm looking forward to a, a real battle. Oh, and man. so each contestant is going to get five questions, and the loser with the least amount correct has to pay to ship our prize of Salmon Rub Perry Perry. And our fantastic new jerk rub that's with, uh, in collaboration with our partner, Trey Lamont. 
from Jerk Track. Uh, today's winner is Eleni Sunada, who was very excited about the salmon segment. Oh, good. Yeah. The jerk rub, it is it packs a punch. That's what I I'm hear. just telling you. I'm gonna hold it up for yet. our Facebook watchers right now. It's got a colorful label, but uh, it packs a punch and it is a, it is a mouthful of flavor. We called it a flavor explosion. Yeah. Is it hot wait. and spicy or is it meat no, mild, it's got some, mild it's got spicy? Some heat. It's got some heat. All right, let's jump in. We start with Terry. Let's go. Number one, there are seventy species of truffles. Though the two varieties most people talk about are the black and the white. Since truffles are wild fungi that cannot be cultivated on a farm, which animal is traditionally used to hunt these wild delicacies down? Pigs, <laughs> monkeys, sheep, or horses? <laughs> monkeys. <laughs> monkeys in France are everywhere. So in case you go to France, if you have been to France and haven't seen a monkey yet, you should go back. I mean, that's... <laughs> You've been missing out. Uh, I would say the female pig. It's the pigs, correct. Uh, Varieties of this pelagic delicacy include Olympia, European Flat, and Kumamoto. Which delicious shellfish comes in these varieties? (laughs) Mussels, oysters, scallops, or clams? I'm going to go. I'm going to. This is easy. I'm going to go with oysters. Yes. Filet mignon, the center cut of beef tenderloin, is considered by many to be the queen of steaks. Which storyteller was responsible for popularizing the term filet mignon in the English-speaking world? Dickens, O. Henry, Poe, or Twain? Twain. It was O. Henry, number four. Saffron And, and is- I'm just going to correct one thing you said. It's not the center cut of the filet. It's the filet mignon. It's... The, f- the center cut of beef tenderloin. Okay. Did I read it wrong? No. Nope. Uh, saffron is a powerfully flavored spice derived from the crocus flower, the stigma to be exact. From which language was the name saffron ultimately derived? Latin, Sanskrit, Arabic, or Greek? I'm going to go number two. Sanskrit? It yep. was, in fact, Arabic. Oh. Everybody knew that. Everybody. Yes, of course, everybody knew that. And number five. One of the most popular sweets in human history is the delicious bee-produced concoction we call honey. Aside from being a high-energy source of car- carbohydrates, is it true or false that honey is a source of vitamin, mineral, and amino acids? Yes. Yes. True. Correct. It's true. Yay! <laughs> What so is that four you? out of five, I think, that you got, right? Three out of five. Three, Three out, out, out of five. five. All right, Cat Gibbons. Mm-hmm. Yay, thank you. Caviar consists of the roe or eggs of the sturgeon fish. There are several types of sturgeon-produced caviar amongst connoisseurs. Which of these is not one of them? Saruga, beluga, tobiko, etc. I'm going to say beluga. It's no. Tobiko. Tobiko, flying Tobico. fish roll. Tobiko. Oh. Flying fish roll. The name foie gras often elicits fond memories of fine dinners for many a gourmand. How does this term translate from the French? Is it uh, goose fat, oily poultry innards, ick, buttered duck, or fattened liver? I'm going to say fattened liver. Of yes. course. Yeah. Yes. Mushrooms, especially of the wild variety, are a welcome addition to almost any meal. Some mushrooms, because they cannot be cultivated, are very expensive in the market. 
Which would be the most expensive you would find? Chanterelles, um, Mataki, Morels, or Matsutake? I think it's sometimes it depends on which marketplace you're in. Correct. I know. Because in Japan, yeah. one, can, one of those is very expensive. Can that count as my answer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can what? I asked if that could count as my oh, answer. Yeah. <laughs> Matsutake. That's what I was thinking. I was yeah, thinking it was Matsutake. You got that one. Perhaps the king of shellfish, the lobster, is prized by lovers of seafood. Uh, I believe there's a king crab. Aside from the delicious meat, mostly de- derived from the claws and tail, the lobster roe, blood, and the tomali are all edible. Which part of the lobster is called tomali? Is it the... Head sack, the liver, the swimmerettes, or the intestines? <laughs> I, I'm going to say the head sack. <laughs> yes. Just because you wanted to say head sack. I don't know. <laughs> no, because that's what it is. Yeah. The correct answer is li- the liver. Oh. <laughs> On to vinegar. Vinegars are key ingredients in a number of wonderful dishes of the various vinegar varieties Balsamic is perhaps the most prized and certainly the most expensive. What does the term vecchio refer to when describing balsamic vinegar? Sweetness, viscosity, acidity, or age? I would say age. You are correct. Three out of five. She's tied with me. Good job, Pat. (laughs) I can hardly wait. Which food is used to create the traditional Japanese drink, sake? Uh, Rice. That would be rice. Yes. Which type of chili is considered to be the hottest in the world? Okay, I'm going to go with the ghost chili. Yes. Yes. In which year did sliced bread appear? Uh, 1622, because uh, they invented electricity then, and uh, the, the Oliver's bread slicing machine I... was the most popular appliance in 1622. I think you're a bit off on the date, but yes. 1928. <laughs> I was like, I think you're a bit off on the date. In which country was ice cream invented? I'm going to say England. This is a big surprise. It was America. China. China. <laughs> Which is the most widely consumed beverage in the world next to water? Well, there's, there's, uh, I'm going to say tea. Yes. Yay! That would have been my guess. Wow, three out of five. Nice. So we got three tie at three points. <laughs> all right, so we're all going to split it. That's $2.25 a piece. All right. Perfect. To, to ship it up, off. You would you like take the cash or would you like to... Uh... I take credit cards. <laughs> Thank you for a rousing round. Kat, thank, thank you, you Kat very Gibbons much. For, uh, for being so our much. victim this week. Unfortunately, you kicked our butts. Um, well, not really. If you want to be part of the, the show, you can join our community on Facebook Live at Hot Stove Society Radio Show or just check in on us on the weekends on the terrestrial radio you're listening to the hot stove society show on cairo the show is produced by pamela hinckley sean mcfadden and our editor is sean don't call me del torre remember if you miss any episode of our hot stove society show you can listen via podcast just subscribe with your favorite podcast app thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend